0: Welcome to CyberCast 2.0. I'm your host, James Mursall. This is our first recording during National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, so happy National Cybersecurity Awareness Month to all. And fittingly, we're talking with the man leading cybersecurity awareness and training efforts across the Defense Health Agency, Servio Medina. Servio currently serves as the DHA Cybersecurity Oversight, Governance, and Strategy Branch Chief. We talk with Servio about the importance of baking cybersecurity into healthcare, and just as importantly, baking healthcare into cybersecurity. He explains how his team is leading the way in ensuring cybersecurity training and guidance is operationally meaningful to service providers throughout DHA. We also discuss how to make the right choice the easy choice in cybersecurity, where, in a Cybercast first, he asks me a question, and how DHA is looking to nudge both its employees and its patients into following good cyber hygiene practices. Thank you for joining us today, Servio.
1: It really is a pleasure to be here.
0: What are your current priorities as Chief of Cybersecurity Oversight, Governance, and Strategy at DHA? And what challenges do you face in that role?
1: Well, first, one of the primary functions that we have in our branch is cybersecurity policy. So interpreting, implementing, communicating, and clarifying. And I think that might help to appreciate one of our primary priorities is first to understand what's going on in the DHA right now. The Defense Health Agencies, in the middle of preparing to assume authority, direction, and control of DOD hospitals, otherwise known as military medical treatment facilities in the continental United States. MTFs? MTFs, thank you. And even though there's two M's, we say MTF, military medical. And this marks a significant milestone in DHA's efforts to centralize and standardize the provision of healthcare and healthcare support activities, which include cybersecurity. So this gives a backdrop to what our first and probably foremost priority is with respect to cybersecurity policy. How do we normalize and harmonize cybersecurity policy objectives across the military health system? When I say the military health system, you may be familiar with Army medicine, Navy medicine, and Air Force medicine. Mm -hmm. And we probably don't have to conjure up images of planes, boats, and bunkers to appreciate that each of those organizations is fairly different They're going to be different in the way they interpret and implement DOD policy. So to your point about priorities, ours is now how do we make policies operationally meaningful to four organizations? Because in addition to Army, Navy, and Air Force, there's DHA. So there is a challenge in itself. Army, Navy, and Air Force have been around much longer than the DHA. I don't know if you realize, but we just celebrated our sixth birthday. October 1st, wow, and that was yesterday, right? So now the DHA is literally as old as my twin girls are. But what that means is that Army, Navy, and Air Force have had much longer opportunity and time to interpret and implement DOD policy. So while that is in a sense a challenge, how do we catch up and normalize this? There's also a benefit. Navy, Army, and Air Force are coming from a warfighter perspective. So, they're applying the interpretation of cybersecurity policies in a warfighter mindset to a healthcare environment. Whereas the Defense Health Agency is interpreting cybersecurity policies with healthcare in mind first and applying it to a healthcare environment. So, the answer to your question is kind of twofold it's a burden, but it's also mm-hmm. a benefit.
0: So, I can see kind of a mix of figuring out how to align their priorities, but also getting the institutional knowledge and best practices from each of those branches as you're moving forward.
1: And we certainly leverage the skill set, the knowledge, skills, abilities from each of the service members and civilians that are part of Army, Navy, Air Force, and what was TRICARE Management Activity and now Defense Health Agency. That's right. So
0: at the uh, Defense Health IT Symposium or DHITS, you talked about getting to yes when it comes to finding solutions for cybersecurity issues in healthcare and how to Make sure that cybersecurity impacts healthcare, or figuring out how to balance the two. Could you talk about one or two cases where you encountered a roadblock and got to yes?
1: I'd love to. And I first, I have to tell you how delighted I am with how D hits went this year. It's an annual conference put on by now, Mister Flanders. It's whoever's the head of J Six, the Health IT Directorate, mm-hmm. it brings together cyber and non-cyber attendees, which is important to say. The session you're referring to, James, was titled when cybersecurity impacts healthcare, how to get to yes. And so I was excited as a cyber professional to share this message with cyber and non-cyber people. A colleague of mine, she recommended considering co-presenting with a provider. And I have to say I was stunned for a moment because I talk about baking in cybersecurity and baking in healthcare, but I never really materialized that in my own delivery. I've Mm -hmm. always presented myself or on a panel session. So I reached out to uh, Dr. James Elzey, he's the clinical champion for MHS Genesis, he's on the American Academy of Family Physicians, and he's a practicing physician. And what was encouraging is that he right away got it. He got the importance of cybersecurity as it applies to healthcare, but equally important, he recognized the value of presenting both cyber and providers presenting the message. So that gives a backdrop why I'm so excited about DHITS this year. To answer your question, during the session, we went through a number of examples where cybersecurity impacts healthcare, and how did we get to yes or how are we getting to yes? And so one example I have to share because it's probably the most well-known example, and I think everybody's familiar with this. In the Department of Defense, your laptop and your computer, anything that has a screen, is likely going to lock after 15 minutes of inactivity, which means if you're not typing or moving the mouse, the screen locks. So it's a technical control to protect the system. Great idea. Bad in practice in a hospital. Think if you're a patient and you're seeing your doctor for an annual wellness check, it probably lasts longer than 15 minutes. Yes. So that cybersecurity requirement was clearly impacting healthcare. And then take it a step further, go to the operating room. We don't want to see a doctor or a nurse having to wiggle the mouse. To keep the screen from locking. This, that, more important things to focus on. <laughs> it's absurd to even, you know, notionalize that. But some people have taken to creative ways of keeping the screen from locking. And I, if you attend, I think you attended the session, yes. putting a digital mouse on a watch that has a second hand that moves. Now, this is 2019. We shouldn't have to resort <laughs> to gimmicks like that. So what our office did is we... We conferred with some functional healthcare representatives at headquarters to better understand what are acceptable thresholds, whether it's a patient examination room or an operating room, and to better understand the environment. So what we did is we struck a balance between the healthcare mission, the cybersecurity requirements, not increasing the risk. We proposed that to the authorizing official, Mr. Flanders. He signed off. So what was affecting a couple hospitals... We turned around, produced a solution, and now it's benefiting all the hospitals across the military health system. So that's probably the best example that's easily recognizable to almost anybody that has a computer.
0: trying to think of some other examples. I remember uh, like a medical imaging device that was sitting on the loading dock for days, weeks, longer, just because the ATO hadn't been fulfilled by the time it actually showed up at the MTF.
1: Yeah. These situations happen even today where maybe a lab analyzer shows up to the That's loading dock. Was. And in fact, we mentioned that and it hadn't benefited from any risk, cyber risk assessment. So the local CIO, the cybersecurity leads for the hospital, they weren't going to permit it to connect to the network and they weren't going to permit it to exchange patient information out of due diligence. There was no way to know if it was going to safeguard the information according to DoD standards. So there's an example where cybersecurity impacted healthcare, but it was for good reason. It was because it had not been processed yet. As it turns out, there was a quick solution to that. It had been reviewed, but communications had broken down. So there was actually a quick solution to that one. And the one point I'd like to make with respect to the 15-minute timeout and even what our priority and our challenge is, the underscoring message here is that we're striving to make cybersecurity requirements operationally meaningful operationally meaningful to the providers, the staff at the hospitals while they are subject to those requirements, while they're doing their job? Mm -hmm. And this is a key thing that I think we need to keep in mind when we're looking at how to make cybersecurity requirements compliance effective. Is it operationally meaningful to those that it impacts?
0: I think I remember Dr. Elsey saying something about that too, or if you bring in terms like risk and mitigate, the nice thing is healthcare providers use those terms every day within their profession. So as far as making something operationally meaningful, they understand, even if it's not a direct one-to-one comparison on the language, they get the interpretation and the the impact.
1: That's right. And uh, you may have heard the term cyber hygiene used recently, and even cybersecurity hygiene. Health and Human Services has a report, a a HKIC report, where they use the term cybersecurity hygiene. DOD now uses cyber hygiene. And even last year, in the DoD cyber strategy that was updated, first time in five years, the term cyber fluency is used. So we're starting to use these terms, which I applaud. I think this is what we need to do. And I'm kind of actually jumping ahead to looking forward what we need to do, and we can speak more about that later. Changing our vernacular, changing our mindset to make our messaging more meaningful to those who are receiving it.
0: It's great to hear. So what strategy should healthcare IT professionals pursue to bake cybersecurity into healthcare, and just as importantly, bake healthcare into cybersecurity?
1: Well, I'd like to start with an anecdote. The other thing our office tracks and works is completion of cybersecurity training, which is an annual requirement for everybody in the federal government, whether you're civilian or contractor. In order to keep a network account, you have to complete cybersecurity training. So one of the things our office does is to track the status of people completing the training. And that results in a delinquent list Which then results in the list being provided to the network security staff, which you know what then happens is suspension of network privileges until they complete the training. Mm -hmm. Well, one day my colleague who usually tracks this, she was out of the office. So I had the fortune of receiving a phone call from a doctor. And the doctor wanted to tell me a piece of his mind about his network privileges being threatened to be disconnected, to be suspended. And I'll never forget this call. He said, Servio, I stopped – the important job that I was doing just now to take your cybersecurity training. I didn't realize at the time how poignant his call and his message was. But it occurred to me not long after that, that the cybersecurity training for that doctor couldn't be further from operationally meaningful. It could not have been further. For him, it was stop my work, take the training, go back to my work. And that reminds me, more recently, the program executive officer for Defense Healthcare Management System. That's the office that presides over the new electronic health record.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that Bill Tinston, I want to say? Yes, exactly. Yeah, we uh, interviewed him last week, actually.
1: Perfect. He may have even said this. So if I'm restating, you can check, fact check. Did I get the quote actually right? He made a profound statement at a previous conference. And that was, he was talking about training providers to use MHS Genesis. And he said... We're not training people to be good at using MHS Genesis. We're training people to be better at doing their job. That's great. Now, this is absolutely profound. When you hear something like that and you feel that it applies directly to your area of responsibility, you write the words down, you commit it to memory, and then you repeat it here. We're not training people in cybersecurity to get them better to pass the test. I can complete the one-hour training in about 46 minutes, by the way. What we're supposed to be doing is getting them better to do their job. What does that mean? If you think everybody's job factors in cost, benefit, and risk, minimize cost, minimize risk, maximize benefit. So how are we modeling the training so it is, what did I say, operationally meaningful to the provider when they're using it? You don't pull them away into a computer-based training simulated environment in a classroom for eight hours and expect to transform their habits, their behaviors, their inclinations. That's not going to work. And it's not just healthcare. We have to look at the flip side of this. And what I'm doing is I'm preparing how we are informed to develop strategies to bake both ways. So permit me one more example. About 12 or 15 years ago, A cybersecurity leader said to me after he found out that some users had made mistakes, which, by the way, happens all the time. He said, Servio, you can't patch stupid. Am I right? Now, we're kind of smiling right now, and I'll be full confession. I laughed, and I even perhaps said it back then. But what I'm also going to say right now is we can't tolerate that mentality. We can't tolerate the phone call that says – it's interrupting my job to take your training. And we can't tolerate cyber's mentality that says you should have known better. You should have baked cybersecurity into healthcare. care. That has to break down. So I think this gives us the opportunity to consider healthy strategic focus to improve healthcare and cybersecurity working together. So what I would submit to you is we start first with a strategic focus. We know what the problem is. The problem is, in DOD released a memo four years ago that articulated this, 80% of the successful incidents in the cyber domain trace back to some form of human error. DOD, Cybersecurity Culture Compliance Initiative, Google it, it's publicly accessible. That's with systems that are hardened. So we are pretty good at being ignorant, negligent, poor judgment call, forgetting something. So we can't say you can't patch stupid anymore. We need to think, how do you minimize cyber risk? Or more generally, how do you minimize risky behavior? And I think that's a good tack to take. If you minimize risky behavior, it applies in multiple contexts. So like you're saying, if we use terminology that resonates with the customers, it works better. Low hand hygiene compliance rates, high healthcare-associated infections— dire consequences. So that's risky behavior, Mm -hmm. not washing your hands before treating the patient. When you're behind the wheel of a car, I don't think anybody would question that risky behavior behind the wheel of a car could have dire consequences. And then, because all good things come in threes, risky behavior behind a keyboard also has dire consequences. So I think that's what we need to do is think, how do we minimize risky behavior? That's the strategic focus that we should be looking at going forward. Now, the one thing, if I was sitting where you are, I would say that's a great notion, Servio, but how? Certainly something I was thinking, yes. Right. And of course, it's easy for me to say, think about reducing risky behavior, but until it's what is the term? Operationally meaningful. It's just mm-hmm. a, a slogan or a pitch that you could say. I, I feel like I hear a lot. I and
0: mean, even this morning, I heard someone say, yeah, human security is unpatchable. And it's like, all right, yeah, it's fun. And you also threw a couple expletives in there too, to really hammer the point home. But that's great. But at that point, it seems like you're just kind of looking at all of your users and saying, all right, you're the biggest risk to our company and just kind of waiting for them to yeah, do something stupid. So, and, and yet, yet they're the whole-
1: also the biggest source of defense. Mm-hmm. Every user can be a single point of defense, a front line of defense. So when I think the strategic focus of reduce risky behavior, one example, and so if anybody out there is in cyber security world of you know profession, if anybody's doing that, reach out to the healthcare providers, reach out to the medical logistics officials, and ask them what their priorities are one year from now. And after they get past the shock that someone's actually offering to help them to improve their business so it doesn't become a fire drill later, then they'll recognize that we don't have to be the business of business prevention because that's what cybersecurity gets the rap for. Mm -hmm. But if we ask them upstream, what do you have coming down that's a priority? We'll work with you. The things that are happening today are damage control. Like we said, when a lab analyzer shows up at the dock, that's damage control today. That's not a strategic, that's reactive, tactical, putting out a fire. But the way we get ahead of that is to reach out before it happens. So that's what I would say is one way to strategically target – for both in, what did I say? Uh, baking in healthcare into cybersecurity and baking cybersecurity into healthcare. It's
0: Great to hear. I mean, we hear from a lot of chief information security officers that their job is generally waking up in the morning and seeing what's on fire, but it's also great to hear. You know, we also hear a lot of them say, I feel like the impediment at the end of the process, but those who have asked their, their production teams yeah. in two months from now or a year from now or anywhere in between, we're gonna have this thing we wanna have go to market. What do we need to do now? that seems to be where the efficiency is. That's right. Or the efficiency can be. Right, right. So what is your perspective on risk management and and what risk management
1: framework or strategy is DHA adopting right now? So this is a softball question for me. Thank you, James. In 2014, DOD released DOD Instruction 8510.01, which is titled Risk Management Framework for DOD IT. As a combatant command support agency, DHA follows DOD policies. It interprets and implements – So the quick answer to your question is the risk management framework that DOD implemented. And it's the same risk management framework that you see, which is promulgated in NIST documents. So FIPS 199, NIST 8, Special Publication 853, Revision 4, 5 is out for draft. What I'd like to pause on right now is that the example of the 15-minute timeout that we talked about earlier, that is in fact an application of the risk management framework – it's taking a cybersecurity requirement and balancing it or weighing it against mission objectives and then determining what is an acceptable level of risk and what is an acceptable level of impact to healthcare. Is 30 minutes enough that healthcare won't be impacted and the information, the information systems won't be unacceptably compromised or put at an unacceptable risk? So that was a perfect example of applying RMF and – promised I would say this a few times, a good example of making that cybersecurity requirement operationally meaningful at the healthcare site, at a hospital.
0: So in your time as a federal IT professional, what trends and evolving threats have you witnessed? And what about the solutions to those threats? And would you say those trends are changing at all?
1: Yes and no. About a year and a half ago, I forget where I was driving to, but I was listening to NPR. And there was a segment on automobile based fatalities. A sad segment, and I was in my car, so I was a little more attentive to what they were saying in my surroundings. What stuck out to me in that segment is that 94% of fatal car crashes trace back to one of three factors, speeding, driving under the influence, and distracted driving. Now, the one thing that I would submit to you that is all three of those factors have in common speeding, driving under the influence, and distracted driving, they're all preventable. A choice was made. You could describe those as risky behavior. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because in addition to the DOD memo that was released about four years ago, 80% of incidents trace back to human error, the Ponemon Institute has a study out on breaches uh, affecting healthcare organizations. At least half of the breaches are considered preventable. And Verizon has an annual, uh, what's it called? Data breach investigative report, I think is what it's called. And the last one I read, they described the healthcare sector as the only sector or one of the only sectors in which the insider threat is greater than the external threat. So what this tells me, just looking around and looking at statistics and what we're hearing relative to how we can circumvent technical controls, we're still the target. And the nature of the attacks are becoming more sophisticated. So with the car crashes, the the fatal car crashes, and with the top three being preventable, what the NPR segment went on to describe is that this is happening even with cars that have airbag deployment all around, crash sensors built in. So it senses if you're about to hit another car. It applies the brakes. Right. So the point here is that even with our systems that have advancements in IT, our cars that have advancements in IT, we are still, I don't want to say we're the weak link, but we're still subject to attack. And I think people know that, whether it's out of an accident, intentional or unintentional. So for me, the evolving trend, the evolving threat and the trend is how do we protect us from ourselves almost? How do we get ourselves to be a little more savvy? I believe I heard NSA director of network security officials say phishing is still the number one attack vector. Well, phishing's not successful if somebody doesn't click a link. So I think that speaks to an evolving threat as a trend, which still comes back to the same source of vulnerability. It's like you were saying earlier, 80% of cyber incidents are caused
0: from human error. And I'm imagining with the insider threat, DHA, it's not necessarily you know, the Edward Snowdens of the world looking for a way to you know, sell the secrets to an adversary, but in some cases can just be an inattentive or, or risky user who's you know, applying a workaround to one of the requirements that just doesn't quite, yeah, it ends up causing more of a risk than it should.
1: That's right. And whether someone is intentionally looking for files that they should not have access to or they accidentally stumble upon files and they're just curious, it's incumbent upon us to put role-based access controls, some sort of what permits certain individuals and not anybody else from accessing those files. So that's incumbent on us to do that. So we almost protect others from themselves. The people who intend to access are going to try any number of ways. But a lot of the incidents we see are because carelessness, ignorance, negligence, and poor judgment call. I think one of the examples used at D hits was – it was a senior official, then
0: military healthcare, was transitioning to the private sector. And if I remember correctly, they wanted to take all their personal files off their computer on a thumb drive or some sort of unauthorized use. And I remember hearing that and being like, okay, I can say they probably have some things they legitimately want to take. On the other hand, it's probably somewhere in this room, there's a cybersecurity professional hearing this story. Praying they don't have a heart attack, and praying it never happens to them.
1: Yeah. So, thank you for reminding. Me. I forgot about that one. The um, it was an external hard drive, a personal external hard drive. Oh boy. So, right up front, it was a cybersecurity issue. You're not bringing in some drive you bought at Best Buy and connecting it to a DoD computer or system. It it's possible if it's screened, if it's checked, and if it becomes government property. So, out of the gate. It was a cybersecurity issue. So you could construe that as cybersecurity impacting healthcare, because it was somebody who works in a healthcare environment who wanted files and was told no. The way we got to yes was recognizing that it was not a cybersecurity problem. It was a records management problem. You shouldn't be able to arbitrarily take files with you when many of those files are part of official business. And the Federal Records Act makes clear When we're doing our business, we're supposed to keep separate our personal files from our work files. I just suspect, I would almost wager, that when people amass 12-gig PST files, they're not separating personal from work emails, and their file structure may not be very diligent. So the way we did get to yes is contacting records management and finding out that there is, in fact, a process by which individuals can request a copy of their records. So the process exists. And now more people are aware the messaging is out. So it's sort of a way to get to yes, but without harping on it being cybersecurity necessarily impacting healthcare.
0: It seems to be a, a variety of things. It's not always a straight cybersecurity problem. It is a records
1: management problem or a personnel problem or a data problem. Right. And what I think more and more people are recognizing is that For cybersecurity to be effective, you need more than effective cybersecurity. That could be a buzzy statement. I didn't mean to say it that way, but I think it's true. Records management, personal security, physical security, all of this comes to play to make cybersecurity more effective. The risk management framework has families of controls that are not just technical in nature. Some of them are physical, personnel. It runs the gamut of a family of controls. So what would you say is a major initiative or challenge in cybersecurity that's not being
0: talked about or perhaps just not being talked about enough?
1: Earlier I mentioned uh, about risky behavior and risky behavior behind the wheel that it could have dire consequences. If you've driven down the road and you see a sign that's on the side of the road and it suddenly flashes your speed, what do you probably do? You slow down. You slow down. It only flashes when you're exceeding the posted speed limit. Did it force you to slow down? No. No. Okay. So notch that one in memory. You're driving down the interstate and you start to veer and you hit the the, 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 the rumble strips. Just instinctively you steer back onto the main part of the highway. Now, if you like a bumpy ride, you could continue riding (laughs) the rumble strips, right? Or you could even continue veering. So it didn't force you any which direction. And the last, because all good things come in threes. Last example. Sometimes when I'm driving into the city, I live in Arlington. Sometimes when I'm driving into the city, I see right above 395 a sign big as day" that says the following. "Help me out here. Click it or ticket it. Okay, I think everybody who hears this segment is going to know how that finishes. That's good marketing. So I'm not going to harp on this, but I will make an aside statement here. I don't think we're really good at marketing cybersecurity as a way to improve someone's job. Mm-hmm like when we take training for the electronic health record, it's to make them better at their job. I don't think we market it like that. We market it as, you're going to lose your network privileges if you don't take this training. Right Now, are you happy about the requirements we've imposed upon you? So when you ask what major initiatives I think we should have at play, those three examples that I just gave, the flashing speed limit, the rumble strips, and the click it or ticket, those were not coercive they didn't force you to slow down, to veer, to buckle up. Technically, you could describe them as a non-coercive alteration in the context in which you drove. Now, I use that definition intentionally because there's a book that was released in 2008 by Sunstein and Thaler called Nudge Theory. I love that book. Right. And that is technically the definition of a nudge, any non-coercive alteration in the context in which people make decisions. So – I try to tell my eight-year-old son, eat more vegetables. Posters on the wall at school, eat more vegetables. If you put vegetables at eye level, anybody who's been in marketing knows eye level, buy level, and more kids will pull vegetables onto their plate because it's right in front of them. So how can we nudge people to behave in a less risky fashion? So now I've set the premise. Now I can answer your question. I think the major initiative we need to engage in is... How do we nudge Amy, James, myself when we're behind the keyboard? We already see some obvious nudges when we're behind a steering wheel. But how do we nudge people when they're behind a keyboard and online? People are probably online more more often than they are behind the wheel. So I think there's more opportunity to do the right or even the wrong thing. But Let me turn it around and ask you a question. You've been asking me questions. Sure. Do we make the right choice the easy choice when you're online with respect to cybersecurity? I'm trying to think. I
0: feel like the answer is sometimes. I know. I'm thinking about some of the things I did. So uh, prior to grad school, I was uh, a contractor. I think I said this before and hopefully we'll edit it out because I don't want to put the agency on blast. But yeah, I, I had both cybersecurity training for that agency and for the contractor I worked for. And I remember this sort of prevailing feeling amongst my team. We were all on site. That it was a made by the lowest bidder, and b just kind of a checkbox you did so that you didn't have to deal with the IT department, who seemed perennially annoyed at any sort of problem that popped up on the network. Yeah. And I remember, I, I still tell people, like, you know, we tried like you just watch a video and at the end and answer some questions. And the problem was. People, much like the the professional you talked to, said, I had to stop my work to take your test or, or do your training. We'd try to minimize it, and the video would automatically pause itself. And people thought that was even more of a problem. And I think about you know, two-factor authentication, people had to make sure we had you know, multiple tokens on us. Do I label
1: this email this time? Do I encrypt it? When do I digitally sign? Do Mm -hmm. I always digitally sign? When I save it, should I encrypt it? Am I allowed to forward this to my personal email? Is it official business if we aren't really making a decision? I think it all
0: comes down to there's a lot of questions, including the ones you just posed, where the right thing is to have an answer to those and ideally have it before it's even asked, getting that – kind of baking in that cybersecurity education to everybody so that they see it as second nature, like the rumble strip on a highway. I think what a lot of people go to, if the training, especially if the training isn't there or it doesn't click with them, is I could do this, but right now I'm going to take the easier option because I don't, if, if I treat this as a speed bump rather than a legitimate concern, it makes my job easier.
1: Yeah. And if we were to ask a provider or someone who's working in portfolio or a privacy official or a lawyer, do we make the right choice, the easy choice in cybersecurity? I'd imagine the answer is no. And in fact, the National Institute of Standard and Technology have been conducting studies at federal agencies for five, six, maybe seven years now. And what they have discerned is that users get something that they called security fatigue, which is kind of like decision fatigue. You know, two in the afternoon, I really shouldn't be making this decision. I really shouldn't be copy editing this document. And a similar thing happens with respect to cybersecurity. There's too many decisions winding up, putting off the decision, or making a judgment call that may be impaired a little bit because you're tired. So I think the major initiative should be, how do we give speed displays, rumble strips, and click it or ticket? And some of them exist in cybersecurity, but I don't think we do it enough. And I think there's a big opportunity there to do that for our users.
0: Certainly hope that we can find the answer to that. To get a, a concise answer to your question, no. And I think it even comes down to as I think about all the various risks, even thinking, I, I know personally, me, James, sh- should have a different password for every single website application I use. I don't. I would wager that most people don't either. Is there an example of nudging in cybersecurity?
1: There are a couple examples. And the one that stands out when we use a DoD computer, the browser is configured to detect the website that you're trying to navigate to. And if the security certificates of that website have expired or can't be verified, the browser comes up big as day, warning, this site cannot be verified. This may be an illegitimate site. We do not recommend going to it. And in the far right-hand corner, down at the bottom, it says, proceed, not recommended. I think I remember seeing that uh, either.
0: I thought it was just like a Google Chrome extension. But yeah, I remember seeing that too, and sometimes I would. Think to myself, you know, I guess that probably goes into critical thinking, right? As far as if a user thinks, like, no, I've been here, I've checked it out, you know, even knowing for you know, the, the biggest thing I think you can do for phishing to change gears slightly is, you know, this seems legitimate. Go ahead and hover over one of the links first to make sure that when it's telling you to go to whatever the login site is, you know, let's say, I'm not going to say I know the exact URL for every DHA page, but if it's, you know, mhsgenesis.mil. And you hover over it, it goes to nhsgenesis.mil. There's a problem there.
1: Right, right. And the example, that hovering, that's sort of a a tweak on the idea of a nudge because the user has to take the action to look. It's not prompting. It's not Mm -hmm. an alteration in the context in which they make a decision. They're having to do some inspection. Whereas visiting a website that the browser flags as a warning That seems to be a clear example of a nudge in that it's not keeping you from navigating to the site. It's just giving you one extra step. Would you think about this, please, before you go? Uh, Okay, I know I typed the right URL in. Click. Now, certainly there are coercive ways to alter people's (laughs) decision-making. If you're straight up block the website, block the website, suspend someone's network privileges. If they don't complete cybersecurity training, you're not really making friends that way. Being pulled over because you're speeding is certainly coercive. Doesn't make someone happy, but it is a deterrent. And that's the one place where I think this analog, this analogy breaks down. I don't want to be pulled over, so I'm going to drive without engaging in risky behavior more often. I don't want my network privileges suspended. That means I'm just going to take the training and be done with it, and I have 364 days that I can do whatever I want. So it breaks down a little bit, that the comparison of those two enforcement mechanisms.
0: I'm thinking of kind of that co measure. One of the other things that the contractor worked for did to make sure that we were keeping up to date on our training and were using it actionably is they would send us fake emails that, that were mimicking a phishing email you might get. If you did click on the link, it would notify your supervisor. You'd get in hot water with them, and apparently if you did it, two three four times they would revoke your network privileges and i remember the first one i got was on day two of starting this job it was i was still first job out of college very nervous and it's one saying warning you, know, you need to pay this invoice or we turn over to collections i didn't click on it but i just kind of sat there staring at it thinking like oh no like what did i forget to do it's day two what do i do with this am i in trouble for not paying an invoice and it kind of created this fear effect in me but yeah, I can see how the nudge would be much better in terms of recognizing this proactively and understanding, you know, there's something wrong with this. Seeing the the big warning, this website certificate is invalid, you may not want to proceed, and, and having more of a critical, critical thinking aspect rather than the fear effect or the the f- even it's the fear of losing your network access or getting in trouble with the IT department or whatever it may be.
1: Yeah. And that's what I think we can work on, because technology is sophisticated enough that we should be able to come up with creative ways to nudge people while they are in context so it's operationally meaningful.
0: So my final question is, looking toward the future, what are you focusing on next for DHA? Are there any challenges you're preparing for in advance or opportunities that you're keeping in
1: mind? So I used to teach college mathematics, and as a recovering educator, I'm always trying to find ways to get the cybersecurity requirements to stick So that people absorb it. I don't expect people to be experts. But I do expect them to be, as DOD coined in the updated DOD cyber strategy, cyber fluent. Just like when you're behind the wheel, you expect to be fluent in driving the car. You're not a professional car driver. But you're expected to be fluent. So even if you come up with a situation you've never seen before, you're not going to react in some crazy way. You're going to react in some thoughtful, measured, minimizing risk way. So for me, looking forward, as we look to how to operationalize cybersecurity policy effectively, which means minimize risky behavior, that's the way I'm looking at it. How do we do that? And there's something that I I found recently, and I'd like to just share it real quick. The person who leads the National Insider Threat Task Force out of the office of the Director of National Intelligence, he said that noticing behavior is the key to stopping insider threats. And I thought this is perfect. He's speaking directly to me at this point, that insider threat teams should employ or have access to behavior analyst, behavior analyst or psychologist. So we're talking insider threats that have likely, whether intentional or unintentional, impact to cyber interest. And we're looking at behavior analyst and psychologist. That's what I want to see as going forward in the future. So co-presenting with Dr. Elsie, where cybersecurity and healthcare are working together to some common goal, where we recognize the benefit of behavior analysts to better understand why you want to be looking for what's abnormal in the activities and behaviors of individuals on your networks. Not just that there's abnormal activity on the network, but that somebody made a decision. They made an action that itself was abnormal or was risky. And I think that's where we're gonna get some gains as we have more people relying on IT. IT is ubiquitous now, whether it's in our smartphones, in the cloud, at a portal, or in a coffee shop. So more and more we're gonna be dependent on how do we influence, how do we minimize the risky choices that people make. And that's where I think we're gonna get some of our gains. And there's one other thing, if I could share this, This was shared during a commencement address not too long ago, and the person who was given the commencement address said, nothing is more obvious than that history is decisively in the making today, and yet the quality of decision is largely absent, that people appear overwhelmed. The complexity and multiplicity of present issues is just too much for us to handle. But where people refuse to decide, events will decide for them. And what I want to share with you is that was a commencement address from June 9th, 1954. Hmm. If now, of course, there were some big issues going on. Think Lebanon, think the time frame. But if that was what people were thinking at that time, can you just imagine what we're suffering today when we have information overload? We have social media, clickbait, we have so many things that are coming at us. How are we improving? our ability to discern whether or not something is okay to do. And we have a little bit of an uphill battle looking forward. Sometimes looking forward helps to look back. How long has the medical profession been around? Think Hippocrates 460 before the common era, thereabouts. How long has the legal profession been around? Think canon law 1100s. When I ask people, when did cybersecurity start for you, rarely do I get a time frame that goes earlier than 1960. Usually it's – a lot of people say 2000, Gisra, maybe even mentioning Karen Evans at some point because of FSMA that was codified in 2003. I think I heard
0: someone <laughs> a couple weeks ago mention Ferris Bueller changing his grades in the <laughs> 1980s as their first experience with seeing it, at least in popular culture.
1: That might be my new go-to example. Mine is 1983, when the then internet, almost the entire internet, came down because of the Morris worm. And that was just some student's pet project. And I think that was kind of a jump start to people thinking, we probably shouldn't let that happen again. The point here is that the legal profession and the medical profession have at least 800, if not more, years on us to culturalize the importance and the understanding of cybersecurity in their everyday lives. If you feel sick and it's more than a cold, you see your doctor. If you feel like there might be some ethical, legal problem, you contact OGC. A lot of people make a judgment call. They say, well, this is okay. I can send this to my personal email. It's not that big of a deal. I'm not really using anything that's sensitive. That's what gets us. So how do we reach people do we employ behavior analysts? Do we recognize that there's so much information that it's difficult for people to make a decision? Is it difficult for the right choice to be the easy choice? For me as a recovering educator and trying to make cybersecurity policy work, that's what I'm thinking going forward.
0: When I remember you saying at D hits. You know, the first step is you see it on the Metro platform every day. If you see something, say something, or if you hear something, do something. Right, And, you know. That's a step towards being proactive, but that's step one. Yeah. So, thinking about the other side of healthcare, the patient, how are you empowering the patient to be better stewards of their data and to think about securing their own information?
1: Great question. About three years ago, when there was, you remember the uptick in ransomware attacks? Absolutely. And that's another example, like phishing, where the end user is the target. And if it locks their computer and if they don't pay a certain amount in bitcoins, you may have recall Hollywood Presbyterian, I think, was the first big hospital that was affected by this out in California. And they wound up paying $11,000 or $17,000 or it something in bitcoin. usually is the more vulnerable
0: agencies I hear about. It's not national security necessarily. It's the school district, the city, the municipal
1: government, the hospital. Right, right. And about four or five years ago, so just before the ransomware attacks started to come on the rise. Then Director Admiral Bono said at HIMSS that we need to put the patient at the center of the healthcare experience. Now, when your boss's boss's boss says something in a public venue, you take that to heart and you try to find a way that you are going to help enable that. So how do we, in a cybersecurity policy perspective, help enable putting the patient at the center of the healthcare experience? And I was coming up snake eyes. Because the patient's not going to listen to us. It doesn't apply to them. Cybersecurity policies we have don't apply to them. can only imagine the outcry or
0: at least the frustration if it's, okay, here's your data
1: that you, the patient, are entitled to. But first, here's some training you have to take. <laughs> and that would be a HIPAA violation. Yes. <laughs> the patients are entitled to a copy of their information in whatever media they want, even if it's in an unencrypted email to their Gmail account. So what we did do, and this was – Another example of collaboration between two completely separate offices, cybersecurity and communications around 2016 recognized that we can't just have the 200 or 205,000 or so employees of the military health system being more vigilant and diligent in protecting their systems and their information. We are giving our patients greater access to their own medical information, which is enabling a better dialogue between patient and provider, but it's also putting unexpected pressure on the patient. They don't even know that they're expected to safeguard their information. It's my information. What do I have to do with it? So in, I think it was April of 2016, the cybersecurity folks, myself, and the communication folks, in DHA communications, we started collaborating on how to message out to the patients. So very simple things like when you're traveling, Make sure you have a password that protects your phone. When you're with your laptop and you're at a coffee shop, don't walk away without it being protected. Some things that are very basic and easy to understand. So in a sense, you could say we were trying to give information to the patient that was operationally meaningful to them, not the same thing you would give to a hospital or provider. CyberCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. It is hosted by James Mursal and produced by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.